see everybody. It's very good to see everybody. Um, uh, the conclusion of Romans, the, the first eight chapters of Romans in six weeks. Uh, I know a lot of folks have been, hey David, have been um, in and out of the class for a good part of it. Um, as I've prefaced it each week, it's uh, so, yeah, somewhat unique in, in the entire um, scripture, in the entire Bible, um, that uh, Romans is intended, I'm kind of marking my words here, thinking about different books, um, is intended in, to, to be read cumulatively. Paul, the author of Romans, uh, builds from chapter to chapter. Now that happens certainly in other letters of Paul and other, other gospels, other books of history in the Old Testament or whatever else, but Paul, somewhat uniquely, and I've not, I've not put it this way before, um, you can you can say there's a theology that emerges from Romans, uh, uh, and it's a cohesive theology in in theology in the in the in the study of, of God in the study of, of theology proper. Uh, that's called systematics, and you could say that the uh, that the theology which emerges from Paul in Romans is a systematic theology. What does that mean? It means that it tries to place within a system, a coherent um, system of thought, body of thought, uh, several, if not all, of the big questions. Who am I? Who is God? What has God done? Um, those are three of the biggest questions. That's sometimes in my audacity, um, you know, sort of you know, talking with sophomores in college or whatever. It's always the proverbial conversation as it goes. It's like, well, you know, we can't really know the meaning of life or life's big questions. And I'm like, well, I beg to differ. There's three of them. Who am I? Who is God? And what has God done? I think that covers just about most of it. Now, you can break that down. It's called anthropology, study of who I am, identity questions, psychology comes into play there, all sorts of sociology because there's the community aspect of it. Um, who is God? That's, of course, Theo Logos, the words about God, um, the study of God, study of God proper, um, all the different ways that we know about God. We talked about in Romans 1, natural revelation. You know, we, Do we know God in the trees or not? What do we know about God just in the natural order of things? We like to think that God's in a rainbow. Double rainbow, you know. Um, God, y'all, you know, that was like three years ago. You need to get off the Internet, people. Um uh, what do we know about God in the rainbow? What do we know about God in the tsunamis? What do we know about God naturally? But then also, what do we know about God specifically in his, not his general revelation, that's how he reveals himself or makes himself known to everybody, regardless of, of person, time, or place, uh, religion, anything else. And then what does he know, what does he, how does he reveal himself specifically? So a doctrine of the Bible comes forth, um, uh, and that Paul picks that up in particular, describing the law and the gospel, certainly something we've been talking about a lot the last six weeks. And then what has God done? Um, how has he intervened in this world in decisive ways? You know, it comes up with big words like the passability or the immutability of God. And so all this is called systematic theology. Um, and then most properly, you would bring in um, an understanding not only of the Trinity, but, but of Christology, what God has done in Christ, the study of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the decisive event of, of Good Friday and Easter, as we looked at and, and we keep going back to in some ways. One of the summary verses in, in Romans 4:25, that Christ Jesus was delivered over for our sins and raised for our justification. That is a Christological statement. 
So Romans, somewhat unique in in uh, uh, in the in the scripture, um, develops a very comprehensive theology. That's why it's a book that at one time is uh, off-putting. It's 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 a lot. <laughs> it's the longest of Paul's letters. Uh, there's a lot to digest, um, but it's also why it's so. It plays such a central part of the role. I mean, it says, plays such a central part in, in not only the history of the church, but just history, period. Um, church you know, movements, you might say, epochs in the church's history, uh, which is to say epochs and changes in history, period, have, uh, have you could probably say this, at least argue it, have always gone towards or away from the book of Romans. It's kind of a big deal. Um, the church fathers moving into and out of what we now call the Dark Ages. Of course, they didn't call that them. Um, the Renaissance leading up to the Reformation, uh, the, the Great Awakenings, um, the 20th century revival, what's called neo anyway, all that stuff. If you're kind of a theologue, you would you would would uh, would place the book of Romans and all that. So, so that's always just the introduction. I'm just kind of blah, 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 until everybody kind of gets settled and gets used to my voice again, because I didn't mean to say any of that stuff, but I did. So... Now we can pray because everybody's kind of settled in and the doors are closed, and, and that's, a, that's the book of Romans. My privilege, I say this all the time, to, uh, to teach the book of Romans. I do it for myself every two, three, or four years just because it's that, it's that important to me. You know, it's a selfish statement. Um, I have a lot of personal history with Romans, especially Romans 8. Um, I think a lot of us do because it's read at funerals. Um, I remember just bawling, bawling. I, mean, I don't know how I even got through it. When I read, I didn't mean to say this either, when I read um, the, the last part of Romans 8, which I might start crying when I read it in a few minutes, uh, isn't that weird? But it just evokes that from me. When I read, you know, I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels. And when I read that at a good friend of mine's funeral, who was also a mentor, um, someone who died, in fact, right two weeks before we had our oldest child, so I was already on the edge, um, you know, it just evokes all this out. You know, Romans 8, it... it, it it can it can possess you in the best possible way. It can possess you, and I really believe that that this is a living word and a word which uh, displaces all the other words. So Romans eight, let's pray. Um, this is from uh, Thomas Cramner's collect from the fourth Sunday after Easter. Almighty God, which dost make the minds of all faithful men to be of one will. Grant unto thy people that they may love the thing with that which thou commandest, and desire that which thou dost promise, that amongst the sundry and manifold changes of the world our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, let's go here. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit, we're going to read Romans 8 in the entirety. I'll say a little bit more about it. Hopefully have a little bit of time for some questions, and I'm going to read a passage from the Hammer of, of God, a, a novel by a man named Bo Geertz, and, uh, and then we'll find a way to wrap up. Um, Romans 8.1 is going to have, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, speaking about the therefore, mentioned earlier that, that somewhat unique, say compared to the, the two letters of uh, the, come right after Romans, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Those are what's called in, um, in the New Testament world 
occasional letters, meaning they were written to specific occasions. You know, somebody wrote Paul from the church that he started in Corinth and said, you know, gosh, I feel sort of bad because it's not going quite as well as it should, and you'd be disappointed. So these are some issues that we have. Can you help us? You know, so bullet one, two, three, four, five. And you can tell that Paul's saying, you know, okay, well, about this, you know, about this and about this, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's not Romans. Romans doesn't have any sort of occasion to it. Paul kind of outlined um, a summary of, 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 of God. Uh, so there is now therefore, no, the therefore says all that I've said from Romans you know, 1, 19 through, uh, uh, through Romans 7, 26, all that is in our view. Those are the glasses that we have on, and that's how I'm seeing all this. So what's some of that? From the perspective of this therefore, here's the question. To whom does God turn? And here's the answer from Romans uh, 1 through 7. Paul would say, God turns towards sinners. Looking especially sort of, you know, Romans 1 and it kind of peaks in Romans 5 and it goes back down. And it's going to peak again here in Romans 8. That sort of mini peak in Romans 5 with one of the... Uh, which is right on the heels of Christ Jesus was delivered over for our, 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 our sins and raised for our justification. It goes into a sort of a mini therefore, um, culminating in this great statement that Christ, dem- that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That who To whom does God turn? God turns towards sinners. And let that word sort of marinate on us a little bit, because although we're sort of good Adventers and we're pretty used to that language, a lot of churches aren't. You got to be familiar with that. And still, even though sort of quote unquote good Adventers, whatever that means, um, uh, that's still not quite the way we would think the way it goes. To whom does God turn? God turns towards sinners. I'm, I'm still convinced that we naturally think that God turns towards people that are righteous. What does that mean? That are showing some possibility of improvement, that are showing some possibility of promise, that are showing some material with which God can work. Not the way that Romans 5 outlines it, not people that are weak, um, not people that are godless, not people that are his enemies, that's one of the strong words of Romans 5, or not people that are sinning. Um, not people that, and that's not so much a behavioral category as a conditional category, not people who are sinful. For God sees in that radical either-or way that we looked at last week, that either you are unrighteous or righteous, unacceptable, acceptable, um, hidden in God, or not. And so remembering that the therefore pulls all that into play, that Christ Jesus, or that God turns towards sinners, um, he demonstrated that through his uh, uh, through his Good Friday and through his Easter. What is a, you know following that thought a little bit, trying to collapse some of the themes together here, um, trying to build up to this this massive Mount Everest of Romans eight, um, that God turn, turning towards sinners, you could say that God turning towards the sinners in love is the same thing as God knowing. A sinner, God knowing a person, in other words, because there's no distinction between person and sinner. That's a theme that we've tried to, I've tried to hammer all week, all, all six weeks, that we don't sort of graduate when we're in Christ to something other than homo sapiens. We're not sort of homo spiritus, is the way I've put it. 
that the good news of the gospel is that people are still sinners. In other words, the adjective that a lot of us append to uh, Christian good is, is, is a categorical mistake, meaning there is no such thing as a good Christian. It's like saying, is there such a thing as a red red? You know, the either or is you are or you aren't. There's not a qualitative aspect to it. There's not a good Christian who sort of goes to church more, gives more, pays more attention during stewardship season, whatever else. You are or you aren't. You're an egg or you're not. Um, God turns towards sinners in love is the same thing that God knows a sinner. And then God turns towards uh, knowing for God to know us is to forgive us. So all this begins to pull this together, that this knowledge of this being known by God this is the title of the class, Let God Be God. Because what's so far absent in all of this? I'm absent in all this. This is all the action of God. We let God be God. And this first love, as John, 1 John 4 would describe it, that we love only because we were first loved by God. Uh, uh, a man named Carl Hole had to say this, Either God is loved for his own sake, or he is really not loved at all. One must love him because he is good and not because he gives good. So to say that again, um, either God is loved for his own sake or he is really not loved at all. Um, one must love him because he is good, not because he gives good. So I was trying to think about that, and I came up with a, a way of thinking. God doesn't, quote, do the right thing. Um, the right thing, well, something could be called right because God does it. That begins to pull in lots of sticky questions about um, election, um, which is what he's really going to tackle in the, in the chapters following. If you read ahead in, the Roman, in the Romans 9, 10, and 11, um, what's called predestination and all that, we say, well, that's just not right that God would do that. That's just unfair that God would do that. Well, you know, again, there's a categorical mistake that we could say, well, it's, God doesn't do the right thing. Either... Uh, uh, that, that, that what, what God does, what he wills, you could say, defines what is right, what is good. If God is God, remember the three big questions, who am I, who is God, and you kind of deal with that, and Paul's done some of that work, um, that you can come down and, you know, is it Zeus? Because you could say that God, Zeus isn't necessarily good, but he's in power. And so you have to sort of learn all of that and sort of be in that category uh, and then define uh, or come to a way of defining the word good, that if God uh, does it, then we would say that's the good thing. That's the right thing. So I don't want to go too far into that because that opens up a whole can of worms, but it's, um, it's an important can of worms. And, and it's sort of let loose in this class a little bit, like I've said. Uh, it's important as the director of adult education to, to begin to broach those kind of questions. That's important. Um, can we, as C.S. Lewis would say, put God in the dock, put him on the stand, put him on the jury, and, and try him? Job tried to do this to his actions and say, was this a right thing to do? Was this a good thing to do? What God does, is that fair? Because all the language of justification is a, is a language of court and fairness and right and wrong and good and bad. And it turns it around to say that we've got it all backwards. To put God in the dock presumes so much sort of a predictable aspect of our sinful nature that we would try to try God when in fact the opposite is true, that if God does it, if he wills it, you would say, that then becomes the definition of what is right. 
Um, lots of questions which follow that. But then that says that God's turning towards the sinner, because remember, to whom does God turn? God's turning towards the sinner rather than to the righteous. That becomes really good news. And again, to stay with Carl Hull, and then we'll go into Romans 8. Um, that God turning towards the sinner rather than the righteous, what's the good news about that? Then it actually begins to produce what we sometimes call morality. Now, I haven't, we, we haven't talked about that, and people will often ask me, where, where is the place of, you know, sort of right living, you know, sort of the fruit, United Way funds and all that sort of stuff? It's, it's, it's here. It's Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. Um, but it can't be, you can't get the cart before the horse, um, that God turning towards the sinner rather than the righteous actually then begins to produce morality. Um, and the other way doesn't follow. I don't want to pursue that too much, but I didn't want to say it because I'm not going to be here next week. Um, so with all that, um, well, a comment, time for a comment or two. Any questions? No, let's just read Romans 8. I want to let the words sort of stand. Um, any thoughts? Mike, would you mind handing up, passing out the Bibles a little bit so people want to follow along? Any thoughts or comments? Yeah, Leslie? You were talking about um, how uh, when, if God does something, it's right, um, not for us to presume, uh, you yeah, know, this is unfair. Yeah, you know, certainly I'm not in a situation that I feel is unfair, but I think if you, you know, our tendency is to look at it from our point of view, rather sure. than a, a much broader point of view and, and questioning why God does That's right. Completely right. That touches a little bit of, no, absolutely, um, a little bit of where we were last week, that there's a both and and either or. From the perspective, from the, the, the position of God, we usually see him as above. There's that very stark black and white either orness, either acceptable or not. Um, and we're going to see this in a moment, right up to the place where if he wills it, it's, it's, it's both good and right, even awful, like, like death has been a primary theme and it will be here at the end of Romans 8. Uh, even there, the hopeful word that if God is in it, as Romans 8:28 is going to say, that he's working it out. Even in the midst of that, we can't see. But it also allows absolutely for the pastoral word of the, the both and, that it's both awful, horrible, painful, suffering, uh, uh, anxiety-provoking, um, uh, stomach-turning reality, uh, that it's both that as well as the other part of God. So you're completely right. So, um, let's try to collect all these with Romans 8. Um, uh, we're primarily going to deal with the bookends, um, meaning just for shortness of time, um, sort of the first part, Romans 8, 1, maybe 1 through 3, and the last part, um, for I am convinced. Now, it leaves out so many things. It leaves out the, you know, we cry out, Abba, Father, and groaning is in the pains of childbirth, and so many phrases that have kind of become a part of who we are. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll stand with it. The, the Holy Spirit becomes central here in Romans 8. Um, I looked at my, so I was preparing for it, and I was reading that again. You know, with the Internet, you can just do all these searches. It's so easy. Um, the word spirit, and that's both the Holy Spirit, and he also refers to our own spirit, sort of lowercase s and capital S, but the, the word spirit, pneuma, um, uh, where we get the word pneumatic, 
Um, it appears five times in Romans 1 through 7, and it appears eight times in Romans 9 through 16. It appears 21 times in Romans 8. So all of a sudden, you know, and he's been referring in, you know, here in a little bit um, up to this point, and now suddenly, in a span of 39 verses, we're going to hear it 21 times, and I think like 10 in the first eight verses or something like that. So watch out for the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> there is therefore, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the thing of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So obviously here a contrast between what's called the flesh and the Spirit. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Um, it's hearkening back to, uh, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, uh, and apart from me you can do nothing. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, uh, if anyone, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. central place of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the same, uh, practically speaking, as the indwelling or the union with Christ. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh who live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. For if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our, with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in, with him. Then uh, 8.18, For I consider, that word is logizomai, for I am worded, for I am worded that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with either eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not unwillingly, because of him who subjected it, in order that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so his summary verse, verses. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So approaching the bookends primarily, and I think Frank's serious. Frank Frank Limehouse is being absolutely—he's not trying to be funny, although he says it a little bit funny. He, he his his uh, tombstones, his and Jane's tombstones, and Jane's right here with him. He says uh, one of them's going to have Romans 8:1 on it, and the other's going to have Romans 8:38 and 39 on it. For there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for I am convinced that neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, and those are worthy epitaphs for a life lived, because it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with God. Um, so these bookends, uh, uh, as Stephen Paulson put it, I referred to him in that, that book, which is called Lutheran Theology. He calls it a sort of declaration of independence. For I am no, for for there we are therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a declaration of independence that we are independent of condemnation. That there is no accusation. That in the court. Uh, double jeopardy is being invoked, that when the, the verdict comes forth that, that, that you are free from the death sentence and you cannot go back and be tried for the same crime twice. And you are a free man because the, the, the accusation is not what you did, but who you are is unacceptable to God. But God himself, who is so for us that he is against himself as his accuser, comes forth and says, no, I, I, I take that and I put it on myself and I give him what I am. 
And so now, therefore, there is, ne- there is no condemnation. And so double jeopardy, really sort of relying on that little piece, comes into play. And it's not what we do, so there's no loophole. Well, you, you murdered, but now that you're, you know, embezzling, you know, you can get tried again. It's not what we do. It's who we are that's on trial, so to speak. And the declaration is acceptable, not guilty, um, uh, counted as righteous, um, and it's not going to go back. And he repeats himself with the doxology, with the near doxology of, you know, what shall we say to all these things? Shall height or depth or anything else in all creation except nothing, much less anything that you do or I do, um, not death, not life, not behavior, not thought, not, not suicide, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is where, um, as I was talking to David Tanner earlier today, um, and Jim, you were out there, you know, and I say this a lot that, you know, why do I do these things? I do this for me. You know, it's very selfish. You know, I stand up here and talk, and I prepare and all that for 40 minutes, really to teach myself. You know, I'm sort of talking, but I'm also over here listening, and I did that last week, and it's like, really? You know, and I still have that re- reaction sometimes. And when I'm walking away from this is is a strengthened word of that either orness of God's monocular, looking at it through one one lens and one lens only, where he sees me hidden in Christ, and he can see nothing else. And so in that specific sense, I am unable to sin. Now, I want to qualify that and say, that doesn't mean that from where I am, just your question, that doesn't mean that I'm not sinning all the time. I mean, because I, it's not what I do, it's who I am. But from God's perspective, I cannot sin. And it's that radical. He looks at me no matter what I do, no matter what I don't do, no matter what I am, no matter what I am not, no matter what I say, what I don't say, there is no sin of omission or commission that I can commit that will separate me from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is radical stuff. I mean, it is absolute, unqualified, law-free gospel. I mean, it's total and complete. This declaration of independence, that I am independent of everything else in life because I am strictly, completely, and wholly regarded, worded, that word from Romans 4, logizomide, that I am worded by God as something other. And again, that word of God, which is living and active, that word of God, which as it was before the creation was birthed, so to speak, that word of God, which, which brought everything that is into being, that word of God, which, which, finds, which, which creates rather than finds anything that's pleasing to it, that word of God, when it speaks, things happen. That's the wordedness that's saying, not guilty, acceptable. Okay, um, and it's a final word. Um, you know, you know one thing. Yes. When you're saying that you're talking about how radical it is. I think it's even more radical when you take a think about when it was said with the law of Torah. That's right. All of that stuff. That's right. Pharisees and Sadducees. This was like, what is this guy talking about? Yeah. You know, he's supposed to have been one of us, and he's gone completely off the edge. Yeah. And we're still there. 
although I don't run around with Pharisees and Sadducees. I do. All of y'all, especially as I run around with myself, that's all I run around with, are these people that are just crying out inside of me. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name. My name is Legion, by the way. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I live with those voices. I live with those people. And all of those voices are stopped in a moment with this one-wordedness of God that says, um, no. There is therefore now no condemnation. None. For I am nothing neither height nor depth, and none of the voices, none of the Sadducees, none of the Pharisees, the actual that were there in the first century, or the ones that are sort of here now, will do anything to separate us. So let me play this out and sort of find us a, an ending point. Um, what have I tried to do? What have I hoped would be something that's happened in, these, in this series? I mentioned this earlier, a law-free gospel, a gospel that doesn't have a good news, where it's both new and good, where there's no back door into which the law, which seeks to kill, because that's the proper function of the law, um, uh, and to accuse, because that's the proper function of the law. Um, a gospel where there's no backdoor entrance to it, where that law comes in now to, you know, in some other role, where it says, well, so now I'm going to teach you how to live. Um, people tried to corner Jesus into that frequently. What then shall we do to do the works of God? You know, it's a backdoor question to get some of that law, that accusation into it. And he never had anything to do with that. He said, look, the work of God is this, to believe, to be faithed, to be worded, and then go forth into the world as worded people and just let it fall where it may. As Augustine would say so provocatively, um, love God and do as you please. Be loved by God. Therefore, love God, because we love only because he first loved us. Be loved by God, and therefore love God, and then do as you please. That's freedom. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this pastoral word, this declarative word, I set up a little you know, sequence here. The, the word of being known by God is the same as being forgiven by God. And to be forgiven by God is to be hidden in him. To be hidden in him means that he will never, never, never have our sins worded, legitimized, counted against us. And we will only have Christ's righteousness worded to us. Um, that means there will never be any stone of condemnation or separation. So that brings me from Romans 8 to, uh, to John 8. Um, it's a way of sort of summarizing this. John, Romans 1.8, there is therefore now no condemnation. Um, write it to Romans 8.39. Uh, for neither anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then John 8, this, this really strange and, and somewhat controversial um, part of, of, of John, where the woman is taken in adultery. So I'm going to use this as kind of a wrap-up. Um, you know, the Pharisees are trying to trap him. Um, and so they go, and it says it right there. It's like, you know, Romans 8, 2, probably, that a woman was taken early in the morning um, and brought to Jesus who was caught in adultery. So we can, you know, read into this and I think create a context of what's going on. It's early in the morning, and a woman was taken and brought to Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery. So we know what that means. I mean, there she is, and there's a man involved, but he's not mentioned at all. Just bring her out. You know, in some state of disrobe, all sorts of shame, uh, just completely ripped, probably out of sleep. It's probably true. And then just brought to this monkey trial. You know, completely, you know, caught. 
red-handed, um, completely flushed with shame. Not only what I did is wrong, but I am wrong. And, uh, and this is a death sentence to her, and she knows it. So the Pharisees want to, but they don't care about her, totally setting up Jesus, because they want to, they set it up and say, so what do we do with her? Your own law, the law of Moses, can, uh, commands that that person to be stoned, killed. Um, uh, thinking that, okay, so we got him. Because he's this, quote, friend of sinners, you know, and so if, if, if he says, yeah, right, you know, I wish you hadn't brought her, but you got to do what the law says, that the people that were following him, the rabble, were finally going to leave. He's like, well, some friend of us he is. I mean, he's going to sort of go in cahoots with the law and sort of, you know, stoner. But if he breaks the law and says, no, I don't do that, you know, well, then now he can be stoned because he's blaspheming and, 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 and being a lawbreaker. So what does he do? Only time in the Gospels. He kneels down. It says he kneels down and he starts writing in the ground with his finger. Now it's interesting. Tully and Chavision said this. You know, the few times that God writes, what does he write? He writes the law um, as he writes up in the, the Ten Commandments, as he goes up and, and writes the law of God. He writes um, his name on our hearts. Uh, he writes a name of Christ in Revelation. Only Christ is aware of what that name is. It's very sort of weird. Um, so it's one of the instances when God is writing, but we have no idea what he wrote. It'd be very interesting to know. But he sits there and he, he writes for a while, and he thinks, and he says, uh, let those of you, his accusers, the woman's accusers, the Pharisees, let those of you who are without sin, let, let, let those of you be the first to cast the stones. And he goes back to writing. He puts his head down. He just goes back to writing in the sand. He's just waiting. I mean, it's pregnant pause. I mean, it's very dramatic. Um, and it says very specifically, and they started to leave the oldest to the youngest until Christ looked up and he said, Woman, where are your accusers? Because they're all gone. So it's just Jesus and this naked woman, you know, totally displaced. I mean, can you imagine her hour? And now it's just she and him. Woman, where are your accusers? No one, sir. <laughs> Cry. He says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, here's the word. Because it feels like it's a law. Kind of appended to the back end of it, doesn't it? Neither do I condemn you. That's pure gospel. But go and sin no more. It feels like law. It's not law. It's a statement of the way it is. The, the monocle of God on this woman is now sure and fixed, and she's been worded. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, in her life, she went out, she might have gone back to prostitution, or what, you know, might have got back into that adulterous affair. Who knows what? She certainly went back and sinned. But the word is, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Nothing that you do Nothing that you say, nothing that you don't do, nothing that you don't say will now be worded against your account. The imputation, the wordedness of, of my declaration is certain and sure. For the rest of your eternal life, you are now hidden in me. And that life is the life that will never die. Neither do I condemn you. Go, Christ is on each one of us, and sin no more. Go in the confidence 
that nothing, neither height, depth, angels, demons, principalities, powers, ourselves, legion, anything, will be able to separate us from him. It is as if, no, it's not as if, because it's not a fiction. From, from the viewpoint of his monocle, we are not sinners. We are righteous. And that is a sure word. So I think that's as good a way as any to wrap up Romans 8 and Romans 1 through 8. Um, it's, uh, it's fantastic. And that only creates thousands and thousands of other questions. Um, but it also creates a free life to um, go forth rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, take these words so feebly offered and come and speak to us. Um, speak this word of freedom that uh, there is no condemnation, that nothing will separate us from your love, which is given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And like the woman, uh, we would hear your voice uh, speaking, wording the truest truth that there is no condemnation and that we would go forth and sin no more. Allow that then to be this uh, displacing, expulsive, redirecting power of our hearts to be surely fixed only in you, where true joy is to be found. I beg this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.